Welcome. You may be a member at Rochester Church of Christ, or you may follow us regularly online, or you may have been referred to this by a friend. Either way, we're glad you're here. This is Adam Hill, Minister of the Word at Rochester Church of Christ, and I hope that this message will speak into your life with the good news about Jesus. It is so great to see y'all. You're already standing, which is great, because I would ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. This Today we are reading from John chapter 14, verses 1 through 4. The Bible says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the place. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son Jesus, who does for us what we could not do for ourselves. That with all the trying and with all the striving and with all the working that we do, we could not do for ourselves. And God, we thank you for providing. We thank you for loving us and choosing us. We thank you for saving us. Father, may we be yours. Father, may we walk in your instruction. May we walk in your direction. And may we live lives that glorify you in every moment. Speak, Father, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. You may be seated. So Jesus starts this chapter, this evening with his disciples, saying, do not let your hearts be troubled. There are some phrases that have a 100% fail rate. Like say when someone says, now don't get defensive, <laughs> but that, that, that phrase only serves to make you defensive. Like, so it's a 100% fail rate. It is, it is absolutely unsuccessful. Or I hate to say I told you so. They do not hate that. Because there's very little that feels better than having been right. Now promise you won't get upset. Or let's not make a big deal out of this. Or a favorite, calm down. That almost always works. Right? That never only makes the situation worse. You got, you got to watch these phrases. There's there, there, some of them that just don't work. Jesus says, now don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't, don't be upset. Don't be anxious. 
And with these words, Jesus saying, don't let your heart be troubled. Pastors and preachers for centuries have marched down Just Choose Not to Worry Avenue until they reached the corner of Happiness is a Choice Road and found themselves at their destination of God is in Control Incorporated and tried to comfort those who were in need. You see, sometimes we read our Bible and we make it so religious that it doesn't actually affect our real lives because it stopped being real. But there's a setup here. And I want you to look at it. It actually starts in chapter 13 where Jesus washes his disciples' feet and tells them to serve one another. He says, I've set you an example I want you to follow. They've finally gotten to their table. They're starving. The waiter brings the bread for their meal. And they are on it. Okay, they are on it like white on rice. Like they they are into this bread. Everyone's taking some. And while they're chewing, Jesus drops a little bit of information into this conversation in verse 18 of chapter 13. And he says, you know... The one who has shared my bread has turned against me. Something that would have been good to hear, I don't know, 10 seconds ago. Before we all took some bread. Like if I'd have known that we were going to get a lecture for eating the bread, I wouldn't have eaten the bread. Timing's everything. So disciples are either spitting bread out or swallowing as fast as they can. <laughs> and he follows up with verse 21, very truly I tell you that one of you was going to betray me. Man, no one's having any fun anymore. Thanks, Jesus. And Jesus is like, here, have more bread. Hmm. Pretty good. Then we get to verse 31, chapter 13. Judas has left the room by this point, but Jesus says, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. What? Okay. Well, at least Jesus is back, the one that was enjoyable. I like it better when you say stuff like that that confuses me than the negative talk about people betraying you. Stick to more of this nebulous and confusing spiritual jargon. That's going to help. That's what we count on you for. My children, I'll be with you only a little longer. You'll look for me. And just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know. They don't make it to the last part, to that important part about loving one another. They didn't didn't get there because of what came before it. I, I think that they were probably caught on that whole, I'm leaving and you can't come. That, that phrase jumped out and it stopped them from hearing, I think, the rest of it because, because Peter asks a question. Simon Peter says, well, Lord, where are you going? I mean, like at this point, we've followed you to Jerusalem 
And we know what was going to happen in Jerusalem. We know that you're about to be attacked. We know that you're going to be persecuted. You've even told us this is where you die and we came with you. So where are you going that you think we wouldn't go with you? Okay, at some point he's like, look, we're ride or die. Like we're going with you no matter what. Trust us. Where are you going? And Jesus gives a super cryptic answer. Where I'm going, you can't follow now, but you'll follow later. Okay. What, what do you want me to do with that, Jesus? Lord, why can't I follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. To be fair, I came to Jerusalem. And Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you'll disown me three times. Brutality. So just to recap, Jesus has told them, one of you is going to betray me. I'm leaving and you can't come with me. And then capped it off with a case-closing prediction that Peter would deny him, not once, not twice, but three times. But don't let your hearts be troubled. Did I get that right? I I walked through the conversation, and and I think I got the feel of it. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Here's what's awesome. If you were to read chapter 13 and verse 21, after he had said this, Jesus was... Troubled in spirit and testified. Very truly, one of you is going to betray me. Jesus is troubled and says, don't let your hearts be troubled. That's not fair. I don't think that Jesus is delivering some pithy choose not to worry command. I think of Jesus in this moment like a mother in tears of frantic relief having located their child after terrifying minutes separated in a grocery store, holding them tight, stroking the head of their child, crying, saying, don't cry, baby, don't cry, it's okay, I've got you. That Jesus is troubled but doesn't want them to be troubled. It's sort of like how I'm okay being stressed or upset, but I don't want my wife or son upset or stressed out. Okay, so now that we've reached a point where this sounds a little more real and relatable, let's look again at John 14. Don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come back and take you to be with me, that you may go where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. When Jesus tells them not to let their hearts be troubled, more than some command they can't actually follow, he's trying to comfort them. You see, fear is a natural and automatic response. 
Fear is something we don't have to choose. It can show up all on its own. You give us the right stimuli, a loud noise at the wrong moment, a threatening glare from a dangerous looking person, darkness, all kinds of attention on you in a large crowd, Renee. Some people don't like attention. Clowns, whatever the stimuli, just speaking from confession here, not a big fan. And fear is right there. Now, sometimes fear is healthy because it can keep you alive. You shouldn't get on that ride. It looks old and broken. And it might, might not work the way it's supposed to. So it keeps you alive because if you were to get on the old broken ride, things, could go, things bad could happen. But more often... Fear is far too persuasive. Fear robs us of joy and binds us in panic. It messes up our mind and becomes a habitual fixation. Now here's the deal. You can't choose not to fear. But you can choose how you react to fear. It is easier to compensate for our fears than it is to face them. All right? What I mean by that is think about it. I, I can compensate for my fear and never face it. So, so, so someone who is afraid of flying will make their peace with never seeing Hawaii. I can compensate for my fears. Okay, I'm not, that's not going to be me. I won't see Hawaii. Fair enough. I'm never going to go on a cruise. Open water freaks me out. I want to be clear, not afraid of water, not afraid of the ocean, not afraid of swimming. I just want to know where I'm swimming to. And, and here's the deal. I'm not blind to what I look like. I have mirrors in my house. And I know that should I need to swim 10 miles for my safety, I can't. In my head, I know that. But when survival's on the line, Tyler, you'll, I believe I'll come through because I'm clutch like that. I just need to know what direction I need to swim, and so I need to see the land, and if I can't see the land, I'm going to freak out. So I just lived with Miss. I'm never going to go on a cruise. That's fine. Kelly didn't know that when she married me. And so she's like, well, I'll go on a cruise without you. And that's okay. I keep telling myself. No, uh, we have an opportunity. I have an opportunity. I've been invited to go to Uganda uh, to do some teaching and, and, and some ministering there, and I'm super excited about that. But while I'm gone, guess what Kelly's doing? <laughs> Taking that cruise she couldn't take if I were there. She's smart. She's like, no, 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 you're traveling. You'll be all right. So it's going to be fun. But we sometimes choose to compensate rather than to face our fears. Fear affects us physically. We freeze, we jump, we faint. Fear seizes control and nothing else matters. Now here's why I'm saying all this, because spiritually it works the same way. Fear shifts our focus. Like Peter, sinking in the water once he looks at the waves and the storm. 
Like the spies who were sent into the promised land, who saw the size of the opposition and gave up before the fight even started. Fear shifts our focus. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 10. I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked so I hid. Fear is connected directly with sin. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 10. You see, there was, there was no cause for fear until sin stepped into the picture. Which makes Satan's temptation in Genesis 3 even more astounding. See, here's, here's the audacity that the devil has. Eve... Eve and Adam, they were living in complete paradise. Did you catch that? Complete paradise is where they were living. And Satan has the audacity to tell them they could have more. Here's what's crazy. They bought it. And the more they get, they, they eat from the knowledge of the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The more they get, get this, everything they had, they were in complete paradise. All that they had was good. So what's the more that they got? Not good. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They already had good. So what'd they get out of the deal? Evil. They got the bad stuff. It's amazing how Satan can make a temptation seem like he's giving you something good. You're going to get more. More what? More evil. That's a terrible deal. You see, sin destroys the foundation of our confidence by eroding our relationship with God and replacing it with fear. And fear caused them to forget about the loving way God had provided for them and the gracious way that God had sustained them. You see, when we refuse to let fear choose our focal point, when we refuse to let fear guide our eyes to look at the waves, when we refuse to let fear set our focal point, that's when we can be free. Jesus is trying to tell them, you are allowed to have fear, but you cannot let your fear control you. I've given you bad news, but don't let that panic you. And Jesus leaving seems like the right time to panic. So to counter their fear, Jesus tries to restore their focus on what God is doing for them. Look, I'm headed to be with my father for a bit, but when I return, you'll come with me and we'll all go there. But it's my time now, not your time yet. And then he tells them about what what the future that, that he's providing for them is. He talks to them about this mansion that he's preparing with many rooms. He's talking to them about heaven. And, and, and But more than that, he, this is not simply a keep your eyes on the prize kind of approach. 
He's not saying that they need to trust that heaven's waiting for them and therefore don't bother with anything else from here out, from here on out. That's lazy faith. He's not telling you to have lazy faith. This is not simply think about heaven. Selfish thinking can greatly distort our lives. Even when the selfish thinking is spiritual. Listen, I'm going to put it really plainly. The guys who flew the planes into the World Trade Center buildings were likely thinking, now I get to go to heaven. Selfish thinking can distort your life, even about spiritual things. Jesus tells them about heaven, not to put them at ease about their future, but to help them live here and now. That this is what he's starting to unpack as he tells them that they know the way to the place where he's going. But then he gets interrupted, and immediately someone said, well, how can we know the way? Verse 5, Thomas, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus says to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the direction, the path, the example to follow, the means to an end. Notice that if Jesus is the way to the Father, it means that we're not able to manipulate or form our own ways. We can't engineer a way more suited to the kind of life we want. We're not the builders of the way. Notice also that if Jesus is the way, the way is not simply a propositional truth. The way is a person that I have a relationship with. The way is relational. It's not that if I believe the right things about Jesus, I'm saved. Rather, it's if I follow and know Jesus, then I find myself in the Father's presence. This is not saying that Jesus is true. It's saying that Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the self-narration of God. The instructions are not about him. The instruction is him. The truth came not as a set of ideas to agree with or believe, but as a person that came to open wide the doors of life to me because he loves me. The way of Jesus leads me to the truth. When I walk with him, I live truly. And so we have to ask ourselves, do we clobber people with facts about Jesus? Or do we provide a way for them to encounter Jesus on his terms? Because Jesus is the way. Jesus is the life. Jesus is the full manifestation of the God of life. Jesus is the life. 1, 4 of John, John 1, 4 already told us that. The one who has life in himself, John 5, 26. The resurrection and the life, John eleven twenty five. 25. I thank Mark for filling in last week for me to talk about Jesus as the resurrection and life. 
When Jesus says that he is the way and the truth and the life, he is saying that a life built in his direction, way, and a life built in his instruction, truth, direction, instruction, way, truth. Okay, a life built in his direction and his instruction is a life that matters and bears witness to the God of life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The destination matters, but so does the journey. And Jesus says, I am the journey. I'm the way that leads to truth and life and the presence of the Father. You see, this is what I was saying earlier, that you know the way to where I'm going. And it's love. Self-sacrificial love. It's surrender. It's trust. It's not my will, but thine. It's dying to yourself daily. It's taking up your cross daily. It's dying. It's everything that God is doing for you and in you and in front of you. Can you see him? He says, if you know me, you know the Father and have seen him. And Philip comes up with a humble request, Lord, show us the Father and that'll be enough. Oh, is that all? Thomas said, what's the way? And Jesus responded with, I am the way. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And, 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 and Thomas, it's like Thomas asked for a five and got turned down, so Philip asks for a 50. And Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you for such a long time, anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I don't speak on my own authority. Rather, it's the Father living in me who's doing his work. Believe me when I say, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Jesus reveals the Father perfectly. Don't you see the Father at work in me? And then he doubles down. Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me, verse 12, will do the works I've been doing and will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. And I'll do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You can ask me for anything in my name and I'll do it. Even greater works than Jesus? Here's what I know Jesus doesn't mean. Jesus doesn't mean more works. He could have said that a whole lot more easily. And I don't think he means works of superior quality. It's not as if we're going to raise 10 Lazaruses or feed 20,000 with loaves and fish. Jesus says that our works will be greater precisely because he's going to the Father. That what will make them greater is that Jesus is returning to the Father precisely because he is dying and we're not dying yet. As he said earlier in 36 of chapter 13, it's not my time to go, or it's my time to go now, but not yours. You have work to do. Okay, Adam, but what is it about Jesus' dying that's going to empower me. 
What, how, do, how are we empowered by Jesus' leaving, by Jesus' dying? First, Jesus' death strips the powers of this world of their glory. It unmasks them for what they really are. Second, the resurrection of Jesus inaugurates a new age. And Jesus is saying that our works will belong to an age of resurrection, an age when death is defeated and sin is stripped of its ultimate power. That the signs and works of Jesus could point to the age inaugurated by his death and his resurrection, but ours (coughs) bask in the full glory of it. And if resurrection is ours, and we know it, then what are we afraid of? Why are we afraid to follow Jesus even though we know that if he's the way, the way goes through death? If Jesus is the way, we know the way goes through the cross. Why are we afraid? Well, Adam, because dead is dead. And I don't want to be dead. Not yet. But the next thing Jesus tells them is that even though he's leaving, he's not leaving them alone. He's sending his spirit. And this is the same spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead and will raise us as well. Which means dead is dead until it's not. Kenny, go ahead and bring your team up. For we know that if the earthly tent that we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. Because when we're clothed, we'll not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God. Who has given us the spirit as a deposit. Guaranteeing what is to come. If we're afraid that what is mortal, us, will be swallowed up by death, read that again. Verse 4 that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. When we fear that what is mortal is going to be swallowed up by death, we live in fear because we lack hope. 
But if we wait for the hope that what follows life is life, then we walk in the Spirit. And life will be scary. But because of what God has done and is doing in us, we will face our fears, cope with our worries, and not let our hearts be troubled. That the victory won in Christ is power in our lives. It's the hope of eternal security that keeps us trusting and active in the present. Not lazy and defeatist. I want to tell you about a friend of mine. He's a professor. And his name, his last name is Lavender. Which is already kind of interesting. But his first name is Earl. Earl Lavender. And he always hated his name, Earl. Namely because there was a show that came out that was My Name is Earl. And Earl was not bright in the show. So he wasn't a big friend of his name, Earl. Well, his parents had named him after a missionary that he never met. One day, my friend Earl Lavender was able to go and visit the country where his namesake served until his death. This missionary had served there. And as my friend Earl walked through the village meeting people, every time he told them his name, my name's Earl, they would smile and they would celebrate his arrival. And after this continuing, embarrassing, reveling in his name, he finally asked one of his guides why the people were reacting like this. That when he told them his name, they threw a party. And they celebrated and they began to sing. And he said, why are they doing that? It's making me uncomfortable. What's the joke? I went in on the joke. Why are they laughing at my name? Why are they, why are they smiling so big? Why are, they, why are they making a big deal out of this dumb name? And he was told this, they're celebrating and they're happy because you're named after the Jesus man. That they remember Earl, the missionary, as the Jesus man. And you're named after him. And they can't help but celebrate because you're named after the Jesus man. Christian, you're named after the Jesus man. Amen. No matter what life throws at you, you know the way to go. You know the truth to believe. You know the source of life. You bear his name. If you want to give yourself to the Jesus man, if you want to give yourself to Christ, I want to encourage you to do that today. That while we sing this song, if you want to come forward, if you want to be baptized into Christ, we want to baptize you. You'll receive forgiveness of your sins. You'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You'll be adopted by God. And you too will bear the name of the Jesus man. 
if you need prayers, if you need, if you need, if you need someone on your side, if you need to confess, if you have something going on, if you need to praise God because of a victory that God is doing in your life, don't miss this opportunity for us to celebrate together as family in honor of Jesus. Let's stand. Let's sing. Rochester Church of Christ is called to live God's gospel, truth, and love with the world so that we all may find life together in God. We are not a perfect people, but we long to live in ways that help people see God and the kingdom more clearly. To learn more about our family of faith or to connect with us, visit www.rochestercoc.org. Remember, you are loved and chosen.